I'm Khalil A. Colonna, and this is Nashville. Bats. In myths and legends, they get a bad rap. I'm sure you've heard them before. All bats drink blood. They all have rabies. Or they will intentionally fly on your hair. Of course, none of these are true. We humans love our superstitions. Fortunately for our flying friends, some people in our community are not so suspicious of bats. They'll even seek them out. Recently, at least a couple dozen people headed over to Cornelia Fort for a bat hike and some bat watching and listening with guide Hazel Miller. She led a group on a path around an open field at sunset, eyes to the sky and ears on her bat detector, a handheld black device with a few knobs and a speaker. Let's listen in. We're here to learn about bats, and that's so cool. First off, I'm going to explain the device that I have in my hand. So this is actually called a bat detector. Bats make noises at a frequency that we can't usually hear with our own ears. And this will pick up those frequencies, it'll play it back to us, and it'll amplify us so we can hear what the bats are saying and we can hear what they're doing. Um, right now, I'm just testing the sensitivity and the frequency so I know it'll pick up on things. As you guys speak, if you press your uh, fingers to your throat, you can feel a vibration, right? Yeah, so that's what it's coming from something called a larynx. And bats have that larynx too, so the bats will make sounds through those larynx and project it outwards. We're gonna begin walking, I think. Um, how many of you think bats are blind? Yeah, that's a lot of hands. So bats actually aren't blind. So every bat can actually see. Ah, I wondered why the bat detector went off. Um, so we have our first bat of the night. I heard it squeak over our little bat detector. Um, so there's one of them right there, which is a great sign. I see two bats. Those two are birds. Oh. Um, bats have a lot more of a flappy, chaotic oh. uh, flight pattern. Um, so you can see birds flapping their individual wings, but um, bats kind of look like they're drowning when they fly, to be honest. It's not very elegant. Um, do you have a question? Um, so, are the mega bats like really big, and then the yes. and then the micro bats are like really small? You yeah, can barely see. Them. Would a bat ever eat a bee? How more bats in the whole entire world? In the whole entire world, that's a really good question. Um, are vampire bats um, the only bats that can drink blood? Now, well, are there any predators of bats? And I also have another question. Well. I forgot what it is. Other voices in this piece were Emmett Kiernan, Vivian Hallis, and Lawrence Vandenberg. Here and here to answer their questions is Corey Holliday. He is the Cave and Karst Program Manager for the Nature Conservancy. Corey, thank you for being here. Welcome to This is Nashville. Thank you so much. This is great to have you. So give us a little background on the Nature Conservancy. What, what work do you all do there? So we're an international science-based conservation organization. We're actually the largest conservation organization in the world. Wow. But a lot of folks haven't heard of us. You know, we kind of keep our heads down, follow science, don't weed into politics too much, and just do our best to get, 
you know, academ academic science into conservation on the ground. Okay, so how long has the Conservancy been interested in bats? So I, the the Tennessee chapter of the Nature Conservancy sort of started in 1978, and one of our first, well, our first land purchase owned a cave that had bats, and then our second was motivated specifically to protect and conserve uh, an endangered bat species here in Tennessee. Where is that one? So that is near McMinnville, Tennessee. Okay. Yeah. A lot of bats down there. Yep. Yep. Okay, so you're the cave and karst program manager. I'm familiar with caves. Yeah. But what is karst? So caves are a karst feature. Mm. Um, and karst is a landscape that's really unique, and it's it's special. And it it's something we have a lot of in Tennessee. Tennessee has more caves than any other state. Um, you know, 12,000 or so known caves, wow. about over 20% of what's known in the United States. And they're part of this karst landscape of, you know, I like to say you can't kick a rock in Tennessee without finding a piece of limestone. And limestone is a soluble rock, and it creates these karst features like open spaces underground, caves, sinkholes, uh, sinking streams, springs, things of that nature. Okay. And all that open space underground just kind of becomes bonus habitat. Okay. And things like bats can live and occupy those spaces. All right, so I know water is a part of the process. Yeah. But what makes caves? So it's water dissolving rock. Uh, so limestone and other karst rock types are uh, soluble, so they're able to be dissolved. Water becomes weakly acidic either in the air or when it comes in contact with leaf litter and soil, things of that nature. Um, and it's able to very slowly over time dissolve our bedrock, our limestone. Mm. And that just that dissolution process creates this open space underground. And sort of the bigger those spaces get, the more water they can channel through and the more energy they have to just continue getting larger and larger. All right. You said that we have over 12,000 caves. Yeah. 20% of the caves in the country are here in Tennessee. Yeah. Why do we have so many? Because uh, Tennessee is an amazing state, you know, from uh, Mississippi River in the west to the Smoky Mountains in the east, all this landscape in between, incredible diversity, but a lot of common bedrock type that is this karst landscape, limestone, dolomite, things of that nature, rock types that are able to be dissolved. And we have sort of all of this vertical relief. If you think of, you know, sort of the, the hills and mountains in Tennessee, the mm. Cumberland Plateau escarpment, and even here locally, the eastern and western Highland Rims, you get all these hills, and then you get this sort of three-dimensional stacking of this limestone where you have layer upon layer being dissolved. Um, and this really interesting um, flow of water moving rather than flowing across the surface, moving underground mm. and into our major river channels. Wow. Does any other part of the world compare to what we have here? So we have a really, really high diversity when you compare it globally. Um, places like Slovenia are also very high. So there are some places in Eastern Europe. Um, and then Southern Mexico, also really, really high. Okay. Um, so globally significant. Globally significant. We're there. We're on the map, yeah. so to speak. Okay, so if you're working research, I'm sure you spend a lot of time underground and in, in, in the dark. Yeah. Are you claustrophobic? No, not very much. Uh, not very much. I'm not a small human, and I do get stuck from time to time. Uh, luckily, we're never going alone. So. Uh, okay, so what's the tightest situation you've been in when spelunking? Oh, um, well, I wouldn't fit anymore. Uh, <laughs> there's a passage in a cave, uh, sort of western Tennessee, um, that I fit through when I was 
bit younger and smaller. Uh, but I, you know, fit through as far as I could. I had to bre- exhale okay. to fit. And then I had to stop to take a breath. And when I took a breath, I was totally stuck. <laughs> you know, it took me a few few breaths to get through. A lot of patience keeping your calm, huh? Exactly. You're not scared of the dark, I imagine. No, no. <laughs> so, okay, so tell me, what type of wildlife lives in the caves here in Tennessee? Yeah, incredible diversity. So I started my career looking at insects and macro invertebrates. So sort of uh, invertebrates that are large enough to be seen. And we have this incredible diversity of those living in caves in Tennessee, and they have really small ranges. They're not able, because they're so adapted to those cave environments, they can't get out and move around. Mm-hmm. So they're not spreading their genetics around. So there's, you know, the the sort of invertebrates that we have in caves like beetles and millipedes, um, uh, things like that, crayfish, they all have these kind of really small ranges. And like the beetles here from the Nashville area, are known from you know a handful of counties and things like millipedes and these pseudoscorpions, which are wow. you know, they're really small. You can barely see them, but they're like the major predator of, of their system. But you know they sometimes they're known from one cave or only one small area. Mm. Um, but outside of that, we have cave adapted fish and crayfish and you know a lot of bats because we have all this open space and underground habitat. We do have a lot of bats occupying those spaces in Tennessee. Have you discovered any new species in your work? I uh, yeah, quite a few. I was very fortunate early in my career to be sort of on the front end of um, doing these biological inventories of caves and worked with some other great researchers and we I, we found a lot of new species. That's really um, awesome. Yeah, and ended up getting one named after me, which was pretty cool. Oh, which one? Uh, so it's Holiday's Cave uh, Millipede. Holiday's Cave Millipede. Yeah. You have to send us a picture. We'll post it on <laughs> social awesome. media. Yeah. Okay, so obviously the most famous cave-dwelling creatures are bats. What exactly are bats? Well, you know, they're mammals. They fall in the category of creepy and crawly. Um, so there are a lot of things we don't know just because they haven't drawn as much interest and in research as, you know, things like whales and dolphins and primates. Um, and, you know, they're nocturnal, they're small, they're relatively vulnerable to disturbance. Uh, so there are big, you know, question marks around bats and their lives and their behavior, but they're uh, they're mammals just like us. They're furbing, they're warm-blooded, they nurse their young just like we do. Mm. Um, people think of them often as like flying rodents or flying rats, but they're actually much more closely related to whales and horses um, than, mm. than these other small rodents. Okay, whales and horses is interesting. I want to ask you about that a little, a little bit later, but where... Where do bats mostly live? Is it caves or other places? It's a mix. So they occupy, there are over 1,400 species um, around the world. They occupy almost every landscape except Antarctica. Um, And they they specialize in just about any niche you can imagine. We have pollinating bats, insect-eating bats, bats that specialize on eating fish and frogs and all kinds of crazy stuff. Are there specific trees that bats live in? You know, um, in other parts of the world, yes. Um, here in North America, not really. They're a little more broadly roosting when it comes to tree type here. Mm. Yeah. What's the average lifespan? Oh, man. That's a good question that we don't really know. Um, here in Tennessee, we know it's 15, 20 years or more. Wow. That's, um, pretty, that's pretty long. It's incredible. Yeah. So the oldest wild captured bat is the oldest known bat, and it's you know been captured multiple times. It's a really small insect-eating bat in Siberia, and it's it was tagged as an adult and has been captured for 43 years now, multiple times. 43 
years. Yeah, for an animal that weighs around eight grams. Wow. Yeah. So that bat's kind of a uh, Generation X millennial in between. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay, so how many species of bats live here in Tennessee? We have 16 species of bats here. All right. Yeah. All right. That's that's pretty interesting. Okay, so you mentioned that their their closest relatives are horses and whales. I get the whales because of echolocation. Yeah. But horses, that's kind of... Yeah. That's amazing to me. Yeah, you know, we're just now getting to the point where we can really look at these broad genetics and understand um, these connections over time. And this is relatively new science, so I can't say that we know all that much about it. Um, but they do share a common ancestor, and they're sort of on the same branch of the tree. Man, I'm mean, imagine if we would see like a horse-sized bat. Right. <laughs> Th- that would be a little bit of a problem. All right, so let's say I want to head out to some caves and listen to bats do their thing. What are some do's and don'ts that you would offer a bat novice like myself? You know, bats are really interesting. Um, They are relatively vulnerable to human disturbance. So um, when they're in a roost like a cave, if you think about a cave environment, it's completely dark, it's relatively quiet, and they're not really adapted to humans going in those places. But when they're coming out in the evening, uh, caves that have bats, like we're very fortunate to have this species gray bats here that um, form these really large colonies, sometimes hundreds of thousands of bats. Wow. And we can go to those caves and sort of watch the bats come out in the evening. And it's it's an incredible thing to see. Um, you know, some of our caves here, up to 250,000 bats or so wow. coming out at night. And it's, there's nothing like it. That sounds amazing. Yeah. they're You know, they're making sound with their wings. The echolocation calls, most of which we cannot hear unless we have some special tools, um, but they're, you know, they're so many bats and they're bringing the wind and, and the cool air from the cave out with them. Mm. And it's, it's really a one of a kind experience. All right. Let's take a short break. When we come back, we'll learn why the state has taken an interest in studying and protecting the bats that fly around Tennessee. And we'll discover why bats are a welcome sight on an average mosquito-filled evening. Do you like bats? Do you have a story about bats? Join the conversation by tweeting us at This Is Nashville. We'll be right back. Kaliole Colonna, and this is Nashville. When I sit on my porch at dusk, I prepare myself to see an aerial display that nearly defies the laws of physics. Right when the streetlights come on is when the bats come out to play. Actually, they come out to eat. And boy, do they. I often marvel at how they fly and turn on a dime, contorting their bodies to catch a flying insect. Talk about being flexible. I wonder what bat yoga is all about. Now, it's really awesome to see. And our state is home to 16 species of bats, as we just heard before the break. And now there's a movement to expand the conservation of bats to ensure their numbers stay strong. And my next guests are a part of those efforts. Justin Thames is with the Tennessee Wildlife Resources Agency. Dustin, pardon me, Dustin Thames is with the Tennessee Wildlife Resources Agency, or TWRA. He's joined by Barraquette Graves, who is an intern with TWRA. Dustin and Barraquette, thank you both so much for being with us. Welcome to This is Nashville. Thanks for having us. Yeah, thank you for having us. Really a, pro- really a, pl- a pleasure to have you both. And Corey Holiday from the Nature Conservancy is with us. Corey, again, thank you for being here. Now, Dustin, tell me, what is the TWRA's interest in bat? 
Well, we're a state agency, and our mission is to conserve, manage, and protect all the fish and wildlife in Tennessee. So uh, as part of that is also endangered species, threatened species, and non-game species, so species that don't have a hunting season. Um, we're in charge of managing all those populations, and bats fall in that. And with white-nose syndrome and bats declining rapidly in the past 10 years or so, it's become a very a focal species hmm. or a focal group of species for the agency in terms of conservation. I do want to talk about white-nose white syndrome a little bit in the few, later on in the show, but tell me, what have you all discovered about bats in this work to help them keep their population numbers strong? Uh, well, bats are really interesting and they're, they have a very interesting life history in that in the winter, about half of our bats in Tennessee, they hibernate in caves, but the other half either migrate through or they have some other strategy to deal with uh, the lack of resources of food on the landscape in the winter. And in the summer, uh, we have a couple of species that use roost in caves in the summer. Others roost in other areas such as forest, um, sometimes abandoned buildings, things like that. So there's a lot of variety as far as habitat selection for these species. So, you know, to conserve bats, you have to think broad scale and think about a lot of different features on the landscape that are mm. important to bats at different times in the year. Okay, so for the bats who don't hibernate and the ones who don't migrate, you said they come up with other strategies. What are, what are they doing to survive during the winters out here? Yeah, eastern red bats, uh, they're one of the more common species in Tennessee, and in the winter they'll burrow under leaf litter on the forest floor, and that'll provide them just enough protection to make it through the winter. And oftentimes, if you're out in December and we have a nice 50-degree day and you see a bat flying around and it's you know going to get cold at night, chances are it's an eastern red bat that's emerged to look for a snack, maybe grab a drink of water before it burrows back under the leaf. And takes a nice long winter nap under the warm leaves. Yep. That sounds pretty yep. awesome. Now, now Barricade, I understand you were Dustin's intern a couple of years ago. What did you know about bats before your internship? Uh, yeah, so I was an intern with TWRA in 2021. Uh, before my internship, I didn't know too much about bats. I've always thought they were cool. But from the internship, I've gained many different uh, skills of how to trap bats and everything. So I didn't know too many things before my internship. What kind of work did you do with the TWRA while you were interning? Uh, most of the work uh, involved mist netting and harp trapping. Uh, so we were catching bats and banding them. Uh, yeah, that was a lot of fun. and. Uh, hard trapping was mostly around caves, while mist netting was over like bodies of water and stuff like that. Okay, so you're, you're you're trapping the bats, you're banding them. I imagine to track the bats. Tell me, how does that work? So you can put a tracker on a bat, which uh, most of what we are doing, we're just banding them to see their survival rate. And if they get caught somewhere else, we're able to know. Oh, this bat has traveled all the way to wherever it got caught next. So banding is just another way to figure out where the bat ends up and just uh, the lifespan of a bat. Okay. Now, I'm curious. I'll open this up to the entire room, what bats eat. You know, a, a, a little bit before, Corey, you mentioned that bats, sometimes some of them are carnivorous. Some of them eat fruit. What, what is the, what's the diet of the average bat? Oh, in Tennessee, our bats all are insectivorous, uh, and they eat pretty much any night-flying insect. In fact, they're basically the only consumer of night-flying insects, and they eat a lot of insects each night. Um, every bat on the landscape eats about half its body weight in insects every night. So they 
In terms of biomass, millions of bats flying around in the state each night eat thousands and thousands of tons of insect biomass every night. That is a lot yeah. of insects to eat. Critically important to agriculture, to forest health, um, and, you know, even human health, maybe. Human health. Hmm. That, that's really interesting. I mean, how much does the average bat weigh? Most bats in Tennessee weigh about 8 to 10 grams. That's about as much as four dimes. Okay. A, wow. di- a dime's 2.2 grams. So they so. really are, Corey, they really are, like, delicate and fragile. So we can truly interrupt you know, just their life and their comfortability, huh? Yeah, energetically, bats are kind of living on the edge all the time. They, because they fly and they have to fly to catch their food, um, and they're so small uh, and sort of delicate, they don't have a lot of extra fat and energy to get them through. They are constantly on that balance and needing to get calories to to support their lifestyle. Got to make sure that they eat. Yeah. That's really cool. Now, now, Barricade, I understand you have a personal attachment to bats. Can you tell us why? Yeah. Yes, sir, I do. So I'm originally actually from Ethiopia, uh, where I was adopted in 2010. Uh, I actually had malaria in Ethiopia, and since then, bats mean a little more for me because, of course, like Dustin said, they eat a lot of insects, but one of the main ones they eat is mosquitoes. So malaria is a mosquito-borne uh, disease. So since then, when I got here in America in 2010, bats just have meant a little more for me just because they eat so many mosquitoes. Uh, we're not too far from malaria being here in the U.S., so while we can, it's best to save our bats. Yeah, I mean, look, in the United States, malaria is pretty limited, but we have seen some cases here in the South. And with climate change, do you think that, you know, we're looking at experiencing significantly, significantly more malaria cases here in the United States in our lifetimes? What do you think, Dustin? Uh, that's definitely not my expertise, but yeah, with climate change and a warming climate, um, I believe that there will be lots of um, mosquito-borne illnesses that come up. I mean, we've already seen Zika. Uh, there are more cases now than ever before in the United States, and I think there's other diseases that will come along as well. Corey, you're nodding in agreement. Yeah, I think it go, uh, coinciding with that is sort of this increased uh, or changes in our weather events. And, mm. and you know, it's really high, um, quick and fast Dumping a lot of water at one time is what we think will is modeled to be occurring here in Tennessee with climate change. Mm. And with that will come an increase of a lot of these aquatic insects like mosquitoes. So hopefully it comes an increase in our bat population as well. That's the hope. We've seen them fill niches in the past. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Now, if you're just tuning in, this is Nashville, and I'm your host, Khalil Lake Alona. We're talking this hour about the bats of Tennessee with Corey Holiday, Dustin Thames, and Barraquette Graves. You can tweet us your comments at This Is Nashville. Now, last week we had a guest from an older church in Madison, and while there, today's producer noticed a sign asking people to keep their windows closed or bats would get in. Let's listen. This building has always had an issue, sometimes if windows get left open, that bats will get in the building. And we ended up buying a net where our residents were catching them because bats are protected. So it's not like we can have an exterminator come in and kill the bats. That's like, all you can do is catch them and release them. And so it was fun. (laughs) It's, it's, It's always an adventure. That was Pastor Jay Voorhees from City Road Chapel. Now, this is something... Some of our listeners' greatest fear is that bats will get into a building. Corey, what should we do if that happens? Uh, You know, there are a few things you can do. Typically, if it found its way in, it will find its way out. 
Um, if you do have like a colony in your building, uh, typically we advise folks to just wait until the dormant season after the bats leave. Um, and then do some do some creative carpentry and figure out how to keep them out. Okay. Now, uh, Dustin, are bats aggressive? Bats are absolutely not aggressive. They don't want anything to do with you ever. Um, and I wanted to add to what Corey was, was saying. We do have a list of uh, permitted animal damage control operators in the state, and you can call them up, and for a fee, they'll exclude bats for you, make sure they don't come back in your house. And that's that's a great option if you're not very handy to to get the problem taken care of right away. But, no, bats definitely don't want to fly in your hair. They definitely don't want to land on you. They don't want anything to do with you. You stay as far away from you as possible. That's right. their plan. What about rabies like how high is the threat that you can contract rabies from a bat you know the threat is real uh, but there are fewer than a t- one tenth of one percent of bats get rabies during their lifetime and and bats do die of rabies just like other mammals do um so it, it is a threat and because of the severity of the disease anytime somebody wakes up with a bat in their bedroom especially if they're sharing the same pillow we urge them to go to the health department and go ahead and take those precautions because if if you're not treated and you get bit by the time you show symptoms you're most likely not going to live through uh, the infection okay so, so hold on you said share the same pillow bats will make themselves comfortable on my pillow if one was in my home. You know, it happens. We get calls every year where I woke up and there was a bat laying uh, beside me on the bed. Wow. It happens. Uh, Bats, they'll get inside and they'll get into dark places, under blankets, you know, closets, in your clothes. Um, And then we happen to come in contact with them. And when that happens, just go ahead and go tell your doctor, you know, and get treated. Talk about strange bedfellows. (laughs) (laughs) We had a caller over the weekend who had a harrowing story about picking up a bat in her bathroom drawer, not realizing what it was. Okay, so, Corey, what should we do if we accidentally come in contact, come into contact with one in close quarters? Yeah, I mean, if you if you have physical contact with a bat and you're not already vaccinated like us bat researchers are, uh, definitely either communicate with your health department or your physician and you're going to want to go ahead and get the post-exposure rabies vaccinations Um, because as Dustin mentioned it's by the time you have symptoms um, it's it's too late to do anything about it Mm -hmm. and it's better to just uh, be preventative all right so you know October has just begun it's the season for scary stories. And, bad appreciation month. And the shots aren't that bad. You know, back in the early days, you would have to get a shot in the abdomen yeah. uh, for post-exposure for rabies. And now it's just like the flu vaccine, just yeah. a couple shots in the arm. Okay. No big deal. Not painful. Uh, it's kind of expensive, but it's worth worth it, you know. Just to, for precaution. Right. Okay. Now, you know, it's October. Stories about vampires, Dracula, to Anne Rice novels, to all the way to the Twilight movies. We're obsessed with vampires in our culture. Do we have vampire bats in Tennessee, Dustin? We do not have vampire bats in Tennessee. There are three species of vampires. They're the only mammal in the world that are parasitic and only feed on blood. But uh, those three species, they live in Central America, and they primarily predate on uh, livestock and, and birds. So we don't have them in Tennessee. We don't have to worry about them. Uh, but they are a very interesting animal. Uh, they're very altruistic. So they form hmm. these large uh, social colonies, and they'll live together often in hollow trees. And as Corey was saying earlier, bats are, you know, flight is very energetically demanding, and they have to feed all the time or they'll starve to death. 
And oftentimes, vampire bats, if they go two days without feeding, they'll go back to the colony and they'll be, you know, really on the brink of dying. And they'll actually beg other members of the colony to share their meal with them. And the other members will regurgitate some blood and feed the starving members. So wow. they, they live in this social structure and they actually take care of each other. Are they, what's their demeanor? Are they aggressive? <laughs> no, no, not at all. Not at all. Wow. Yeah, they're, they're you know, they're really interesting. I think vampire bats are fascinating. A lot of people are interested in them. You know, bats are full of superlatives, and one of my favorites is that vampire bats have the sharpest teeth in the animal universe. Uh, but they're like tiny little razor blades. They, okay. they only drink, you know, half to maybe as much as a, a little over half a tablespoon of blood at a time. Um, and they to, to be successful, they have to be very cautious and gentle yeah. um, on these livestock or bird feet, whatever they're, whatever they're feeding on. I can imagine. Yeah, if the host knows they're there, it's over. It's got to be a huge problem on their yeah. hands. Okay, so I'm, I'm wondering about the bats here in Tennessee. Barricade, do bats in Tennessee, do they have any predators here? They do have predators here. Uh, one of the big ones are humans, of course. Uh, like like we were saying earlier, many people don't view bats as a positive thing. Uh, you see it in movies. Everybody's scared of bats. They're afraid they're going to lay eggs in their hair and everything. And, of course, bats don't even lay eggs. <laughs> so, yeah, humans are the main ones, but there's other things. Bats themselves can be uh, predators of each other. But, yeah, other mammals can kill bats. So, yeah. How do they protect themselves? Do they have any natural-born defenses? Uh, that might be a better question for Dustin. <laughs> Dustin? Yeah, you know, I think their best defense is that they're they're so fast at flying and changing directions and avoiding yeah. predators as one of the main ways, but they will definitely bite anything that grabs them. Okay. Yeah, it's uh -huh. behavioral. Behavioral, yeah. Uh, we have you know lots of predators of bats, raccoons, possums, snakes, owls. Um but behaviorally, they've sort of adapted over time to find solutions and, and ways to decrease and minimize that. Now, one thing that poses a threat, you mentioned this earlier, Dustin, white nose syndrome. What is that? Yeah, white nose syndrome is a disease caused by a fungal pathogen that was introduced from Europe or Asia to North America back in 2006. And this is a the pathogen is a cold-loving fungus. And once it's introduced into a cave system, it just stays there. It doesn't really go anywhere. And when bats fly into the cave, they're basically the perfect petri dish. The spores from the fungus will start growing into the bat's uh, skin cells, either on their muzzle, white nose, uh, or on their wing membrane. And it basically causes the bats to wake up. And when the bats will wake up, they'll clear the infection, but then they'll go back into hibernation and the fungus keeps growing. So the bats end up burning all their fat reserves before there's enough food on the landscape for them to survive. So they essentially starve to death because of this disease. How many caves in Tennessee are affected with, infected with these spores? We assume all of them, right? Wow. Yeah, we're in the endemic zone, um, and everywhere we have tested at this point, we've found it. What kind of global de decline in the populations have we seen because of this? <laughs> that is a great question. It's hard uh, to quantify. Yeah. Wow. Well, millions and millions of bats have died as a result of this disease. You know, we have some observations here in Tennessee. One of our formerly most widespread bats was a tricolored bat. Prior to this fungus being introduced here, um, we had an average of over 100 bats per cave in Tennessee of these tricolored bats, and now we're under 20. So if you extrapolate out to, you know, 12,000 caves, that's a lot of bats of only one of our 16 species. So what's our best hope? <laughs> 
Well, I think the bats are adapting to some degree. Uh, in the Northeast, little brown bats, uh, we found, or you know, the scientists up there have found that bats are coming into hibernation with more fat reserves. And so that means that they can essentially wake up more and survive the winter. So we hope that the bats are going to adapt. That's our best hope. There's also really a lot of interesting ongoing research um, into controlling the fungus or, or adapting the fungus to make it less... Um, you know, active on bats, but then also just um, we have a lot of evidence that we can we can help bats along the way, whether that's, uh, you know, mostly helping them put on calories using less energy. OK. And that's where a lot of the sort of conservation tools that we deploy on the ground, whether that's protecting a cave site or adding artificial habitat like bat houses and bat roosts, things of that nature. That's where those come into play. So uh, the question I have is, you know, why are that's really super important neighbors for us. Like, you know, not only should we encourage to tolerate them, but we should encourage them to kind of hang around our houses, right? Absolutely. They're, you know, the best free pest control that we have. Um, you know, eating half their body weight a night in insects is a, you know, every bat is a very good benefit to all of us. Yeah, the value of, of bats to agriculture in Tennessee has been estimated about $313 million a year. Wow. And it's on average, I think, $75 an acre per year, okay. um, which is a lot. And that's just passive. We don't have to do anything for that. That's a nice financial incentive yeah. to keep them around. Now, now, Barricade, you, I, I see your Instagram is full of really fantastic comment, content with you out there hunting and doing field work. Question for you. What do you think you want to do when you graduate and get done with school? That's a good question. Uh, <laughs> well, I'm not exactly sure right now. So... Uh, the summers I have during school break, I'm uh, getting internships like I did with TWA a couple of years ago and trying to help me gui guide me to where I want to end up one day. But, yeah, right now I've worked with uh, the Park Service and mostly with bears, elk, and hogs. So just getting experience, hoping that it will help me decide what I want to do in the future. We've been trying to drag him back to TWRA, so hopefully one day we'll get to see that application in. Hey, let's make it happen. I want to thank my guests, Barraquette Graves, Dustin Thames, both with the Tennessee Wildlife Resources Agency, and Corey Holiday with the Nature Conservancy. Thank you all for being on the show today. Really appreciate it, gentlemen. Thank you so thank much, you. Khalil. We're about to go to thank break. You, Really, thank you. But we're about to go to break. But before we do, our producer, Tasha A.F. Lemley, went over to Owls Hill Nature Sanctuary, where Corey taught a group, including one young bat fan, Leona D'Amico, about how to make bat houses. Do you guys have any questions before we get started on our bat houses? Yeah. Um, do they drink blood? Do they drink blood? Excellent first question. So... Yes, there are bats that drink blood. So there are vampires that have a madhouse kit on their table. Let's make sure we have everything. Make sure you have um, what looks like a little bit of a pile of wood. There should be a hardware kit with some screws in it. We're not going to mess it up. We're not going to mess it up. You want to square that up? Okay. So talk it through. Yeah. I am. I forgot to show you how that works, didn't I? I'm sorry. So this goes, let's see, the top of that. See how you can push the bottom and that goes one way and the top goes the other. 
So you'll want to push the top to make it go in and the bottom to make it go out. So for that, you'll want to push the top. I'm sorry, I forgot to show you that. It's okay. How are we looking? Yeah. We're good. I so. You got it. You got it. You got it. <laughs> Perfect. So in regards to placement, oh, there, we go. there are some general rules about bat house placement that we try to follow. They want this bat house to get good and warm. The higher the better, a minimum 10 to 12 feet or so, you know, some sunlight during the day. That's what we consider an optimal placement. I've chosen bats over people because I never did like the way humans made me feel. back we'll learn how humans and bats can live together in harmony and talk with a group that is making shelters for our flying furry friends as always you can join the conversation by tweeting us at this is nashville we'll be right back i'm khalil a colonna and this is Nashville. So we've been learning a lot of bad history and why we shouldn't just tolerate them, but encourage them to stick around. Hey, the less mosquito bites, the better. My next guests are taking this movement to the next level by making sure that bats have a safe home. Sarah Samaray is the chair of the Tennessee Bat Working Group. Christopher Renafort is the owner of Bat B&B, &B, and Israel Irwin is a Boy Scout with the East Nashville Troop. Thanks to you all for being here. Welcome to This is Nashville. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, it's great to be here. Real, really great to have you all. Israel, I want to start with you. You're working toward on an Eagle Scout project involving bats. Yes. What are you doing? I am uh, putting up prefabricated bat boxes donated by Bat B&B &B throughout Shelby Bottoms and Park. Well, tell me about these boxes. What do they look like? Well, they're about, uh, I'd say like three feet long, about like a foot and a half wide. They've got a nice little space for the bats to go up and live in them. What makes it a good space for bats to live in? Just places for them to hang on while they roost upside down. How many have you constructed? They, we didn't construct any of them. They were donated, pre-built, so we just got to get them up. Okay, so I imagine you're looking to do more, right? Yeah. How much money do you still need to raise to have these all up in the park? Uh, we've estimated we need around 1500 We have around $200 donated right now. Okay. Well, hopefully those efforts will change. Now, now Chris, you started the company Bat B&B. &B. It's like a deep dive into people who want to get into this conversation on a family level. Well, tell us what inspired you to do this. Yeah. So we, we started the Bat B&B &B business five years ago. And similar to the earlier conversations on the call here, uh, Zika was in the media like crazy back then and so many folks were just afraid of mosquitoes and diseases and the only answer felt like pesticides and everyone hates pesticides they're expensive they're nasty and there just weren't any good natural solutions for pest control on the market so as we've learned today bats are this incredible form of natural pest control but folks didn't know about them weren't aware and when you look at the the bat house space in the market a lot of bat houses out there are unfortunately, even though well-intentioned, are really poorly designed for the animal. 
Um, they either have mesh things inside that can hurt the animal's uh, uh, wings or they are too small for what the animal wants. Um, so we partnered with some experts to design kind of the BMW of bat, bat houses to say, which is our, our line of bat BMBs. BMW of bat houses. It sounds great. Now, I'm, I'm interested how many bats can fit into one of these finely crafted bat homes? Yeah, so we have multiple uh, sizes. So our smallest one will house up to 50 to 70 bats. And then our best seller dual chamber one um, will house up to 150 bats or so. Wow. Uh, and then we have one jumbo uh, model that we call the mammoth after mammoth caves uh, that will house 300 plus bats. Okay, so let's say I want to build and put a bat house on my property. What would you recommend as a place where I can put this house so it works out great for them? Yeah, so the perfect ideal placement is you want to either put it on the side of your house or garage or ideally in a post that you can cement into the ground. Perfect height is 15 to 20 feet high. You want to get ideal sunlight, six plus hours of sunlight a day. They love it warm and nice and tight in there. Um, and then the most common mistake we don't want folks doing is please do not put it up on a tree. Because if you put it up on a tree, it's usually too much shade. And it's also just too close to those perches for those predators, like owls or hawks. So you don't want them kind of swooping in and grabbing the bats as they're going out to eat at night. Okay, those are good tips. Now, Sarah, you're the chair of the Tennessee Bat Working Group. Tell us about your organization. Yeah, so we are a chartered organization. We began in 2004. And um, the real impetus for forming the Tennessee Bat Working Group was to collaborate um, throughout people uh, throughout the state for people doing research on bats. One, to make sure that we're not surveying bats too many times. It's like, have, have you been in this cave? Oh yeah, I went in this cave. So mm. to s sort of coordinate those research efforts, but also beyond just coordinating the research to bring all the people that are working on bats together so we can discuss amongst ourselves, we can talk about bat research, and so we can share that information with the public. We've got to focus on conservation, um, you know, anything we can do to improve bats' habitat and then share that information. Uh, that's what we look to do. Now, we heard a little bit earlier about tracking of bats on the show. I hear that we may have some, what are they called, Indiana gray bat sightings. Why, tell me, why is that significant? Okay, those are a couple different species. The Indiana bat is a small bat that is federally threatened. Um, the gray bat is also, I mean, I'm sorry, it's federally endangered. <laughs> the gray bat is also endangered. Um, and so Corey is the gray bat king of Tennessee. Okay. Um, the gray bat's really special because it's one of the only species in our state that's in caves year round. So where a lot of cave bats are in caves in the winter, they come out to the trees in the summer. Mm -hmm. That's what the Indiana bat does. So it's really important to track these bats and see where they're going, especially for the Indiana bat. Um, what we'll do is we'll catch them, we'll affix a little radio transmitter to their back, back with just some surgical glue, and then we hope to track that bat and see where they're moving and find their maternity tree. So where are the babies being born? Mm. Let's look to save those trees. Okay, so you, know, you mentioned that both of these species are endangered. What's the implications of having these endangered species hanging around here in Tennessee? Well, it's really special. So we've got the Indiana bat, um, the gray bat, the northern long-eared bat, um, and also the tricolor bat is proposed endangered and should be listed any day now. And so we have these species 
in our area, in our immediate area, and we've got a lot of development in Nashville. So um, uh, one of the things that we do is um, we do presence absence surveys for these species before development to make sure that these development projects aren't going to negatively affect the listed bat species. Do you have a favorite species? I do have a favorite species, and it was before it was listed, but um, the tricolored bat has always been one of my favorites. They're, you know, one of the smallest ones we have. They they look just like a little puffball, and especially when they're um, putting on their fat reserves for the winter, they really puff up, and they're just a calm species. They're uh, a really chill bat, and when we were harp trapping for bats before, you could reach into the harp track bag. It's got this little bag where the, the bats will be held until you get them out. And sometimes you could tell just from the feel of the bat, it's like, oh, this one's a tricolored bat. It's nice and fat and calm. <laughs> They're my favorite. They're fuzzy. I can imagine a little stuffed animal looking like that. Now, now bats, they use echolocation to navigate the skies and to hunt. Christopher, you sent us some tape of echolocation. Let's hear that. Okay, so Christopher, what are we hearing? Yeah, so essentially that is the bat echolocating. So that has been putting out, as they shared earlier in the call, um, their signals to try and find those bugs uh, that they're hunting out at night. And if you're out uh, in your backyard, and a lot of our uh, uh, community of bat, bat lovers love to do this, they put up their bat house, and then they'll go out at night when they're swooping out to go hunt for the evening, and you'll hear them echolocating, and you can have those little bat radar detector devices on your phone uh, and actually have that play back to you, which is really exciting. All right, so in this clip that we just heard, how, about how many bats were we hearing? Uh, that was actually a single bat, I believe. One bat. All right, so what do the slower and faster chirps indicate? That I'm actually not totally sure of. I'm I can speak to that. Okay. Yeah, <laughs> so I have been doing a lot of vetting of acoustic calls. Um, you know, we can use mist nets to catch the bat, or we put out these acoustic detectors. We record the calls, but then we run them through software programs to help with the ID of the bat. Um, so bats have what they start out with is what we call a search phase call, and they'll emit these lower frequency, longer pulses uh, in open areas so they can get a picture of the landscape they're looking at. Mm. With that search phase, they might pick up on a bug. Once they maybe pick up on something, then they'll move into an approach phase, and they're changing the frequency of their call. It's starting to be a, a high to low sweep, and with that change in frequency, they're getting more information about the insect. Maybe they're trying to dodge a tree, um, but if it's an insect, as they get closer and closer, the calls get steeper and closer together resulting in what we call a feeding buzz. And that feeding buzz swoops from a high frequency to low frequency. They're being emitted very quickly. So, oh, many calls per second. Um, and that specific feeding buzz will give all sorts of information about the insect. How big is it? Where is it exactly until the feeding buzz stops? That means the bat's hopefully got a bug in its mouth. And then it starts again until it That's eats right. three times its body weight in one night. That is really, really remarkable. Israel, tell me this. Why bats? What do you love about them? Well, they're really cute, first of all. <laughs> um, I agree. 
Yes. No, my interest kind of started when I was sitting in my pool in my backyard, and we had this bat that we had named Jonathan. My sister named him Jonathan. Mm-hmm. He'd come down and he'd come and drink out of our pool. So ever since then, bats have really kind of piqued my interest. Yeah, yeah. Do you hope to maybe work with bats a little bit? I hope to give a home. College? I hope to give a home with for Jonathan. Mm-hmm. Uh, finish out my eagle. You know, help support Troop Three with all these donations and. Just do everything I can to ensure bats are healthy. Okay, we just have just over a minute left. Now, Sarah, tell us, what can we do to kind of help bats thrive in our neighborhood? What should we do at our homes? Okay, well, um, one piece of information is putting those bat houses out. And I have exciting news. I was out on the back porch last night watching bats. Kind of, We've got like a bat flyway in our backyard, this area where they're back and forth. Um, and we have a bat house that uh, we put up, I guess, probably this spring. We've been checking it. There hasn't been anything in it. And then I was like, oh, I think I saw a bat just come out of there. And so I told my husband, he went and checked the bat house, the light, and we have two bats two in bats. our bat house. Yeah. So I'm just elated. Um, Congratulations. <laughs> uh, thank you very much. So, uh, What, what about, I mean, people don't like mosquitoes. They'll spray, they'll use, you know, stuff with chemicals. They'll u- even use the ones that are eco-friendly and supposed to have yes. not a lot of chemicals. Does that injure bats? Should we continue to spray or yeah, so stay away from that? Pesticides, not good for bats. So for bats, we want to provide, we're providing the shelter, make sure they have water, make sure they have food. And bats are eating those insects. So the um, traditional pesticides, they're obviously killing all the insects. But unfortunately, these natural pesticides, they're not just killing the mosquitoes, they're killing all the insects. So mm-hmm. if you really want to make your yard hospitable to bats, you need to plant the species, so native plant species, that are going to encourage bat food, like moths, beetles. They're not only eating mosquitoes. Okay. I want to thank you all so much for being here. Sarah Samaray is the chair of the Tennessee Bat Working Group. She was joined by Christo- Christopher Ranafor, the owner of Bat B&B, and Israel Irwin, a Boy Scout with the East Nashville Troop. Again, thank you all for being here and sharing this amazing bat knowledge. And thanks to you for tuning in this hour. This is Nashville is a production of Nashville Public Radio. Today's episode was produced by Tasha A.F. Limley. It was directed by Magnolia McKay. Laura Boach is our technical director. The masterminds behind our theme music are LaRange and Namir Blade. Special, special thanks to John Michael Cassidy, Alan Hatcher, and John French. You can listen back at thisisnashville.org or wherever you get your podcast. The conversation doesn't end here. Tweet us at This Is Nashville. Find us on Instagram and tell us what you want from our show by filling out our quick survey online. This is Nashville. I'm Khalil Ekolona. We'll see you tomorrow, everybody. And be good to each other.